I've been redeemed. The theme of 1 Corinthians. That's what Paul is trying to get across. And we don't always think of that when we think of 1 Corinthians because we think of this negative book where so much has happened in that church. And that's all true. And we're going to cover that. But Paul's message is, that's not you. You've been redeemed. You are different because of the work of Christ. Just turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. And I just want to read a, a verse that I think is one of the key verses of 1 Corinthians before we get into what I was going to talk about this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And Paul, right in in verse 2, makes it a point, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. You've been redeemed, which means your sins have been paid for. If you repent and come to Christ, you're being sanctified, you're being made holy throughout this life. That is who we are. That is who you are. And that should change how we act. And that brings us into 1 Corinthians. That theme is going to come up in almost every one of the issues Paul deals with. Because that's the ultimate solution. We're going to spend more time on that verse specifically in the first nine verses next week. But this week, we want to just take a, a time for some introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians. One of our traditions here is as we start a new series... Um, we, we spend some time on the history of the city and the, the background of the book. With 1 Corinthians, that's especially important because this is a letter that almost reads like a private letter. As we study 1 Corinthians, there's times where I'm like, I don't know if I should be reading this. This is to someone else. But we know that this is the Word of God for our edification, for our encouragement, for our instruction. And so we study 1 Corinthians with an eye to what God wants to teach His church. And so we're going to be be studying a variety of different specific issues. And so it's helpful to know the background in the city and what's going on. And so that's going to be today. And we'll, So today is more history and maps and dates. And some of you are already sort of jumping up and down because this is your favorite part of any new series. That's great. It's essential to understand the book. And so that's why we start there. How many of you have, have college students or have had college students? Okay. How many of you sent them out of your home to college? Was that just you know the, the, the scariest thing ever? What do you think of when you think of sending your, your son or your daughter away to college? Besides an exercise room or a sewing room or, or some of those other things. What do you think of for them? What are your concerns? Influences, okay? Because you're sending them out of your sphere of influence to what's largely an unknown sphere of influence, especially with college culture in this world today, um, where it's known for drink, binge drinking and sexual promiscuity and just anything goes. And you know, I even see, read things, well, college is the time of your life where you're to try new things and figure out really what your life's about. Well, no, no, no. College is a time where you have a great amount of energy and time and can serve God in amazing ways that that the responsibilities of life haven't come into to play on yet. It's just totally different from what the world says. It was interesting. A recent report went through the 50 states, 
and identified the boringest colleges in each state. Did anyone see that? Your daughter goes to one of them, doesn't she? Chris and Amanda, I think you guys went to one of them. Number four, okay. Biola was on the list. Um, these are boring colleges. Do you know why? Because people aren't getting drunk and people aren't having sex all over the place. That's the world we live in. And that's what we send our sons and our daughters out into. And it's hard because we're worried about influence. Sorry, I sort of camped on influence for a little bit. <laughs> um, we're worried about that influence because we take on the characteristics of the influence around us unless we're careful, right? Husbands and wives, when you've been married 25, 30, 50, 60, we have some 60 and 70 years in here, you start to take on each other's characteristics, right? A little bit of the same language, mannerisms. Some say you start to look like each other. For some of you men, that gives you hope. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but we take on mannerisms of the environment that we're in, right? Unless we're very careful. At work, men and women, if you're at work where there is a lot of language and just foul language, it's hard sometimes because you start thinking that and can start using that without even noticing it. I start, my first job was at a construction company out back where the workers were. And I can remember hearing all kinds of just sexual innuendos and all kinds of things like that. And, and it, it was hard to keep out of my brain unless I, I put up a wall there and a barrier and intentionally stopped that. But it works for the good too. And there are times when you're with people that, that love God and are serving God and that just starts to rub off in some amazing ways. And so environment matters. As we come to 1 Corinthians, we're coming to a church that Paul founded. And he started a church in a very decadent city. And we'll talk about some of the details of that because that helps us understand the book. But he founded the church, spent some time there, and then he left and left them on their own with the influence of the city around them. And he monitored their progress. And as he heard reports, and as he, he got letters and heard what was going on, he became more and more alarmed that the influence of the city was affecting this church rather than the church influencing the city. And so we come to 1 Corinthians looking for how do we stay godly in an ungodly world. The, the, the message is the same for us today. How do we stay godly and live godly lives in a culture that is increasingly post-Christian and non-Christian and anti-Christian? You just have to watch the news. And if you really want to hear it, watch certain channels like MSNBC and you'll just get the anti-Christian stuff left and right. We live in a culture where it is increasingly hard to walk with God. And so 1 Corinthians is very pertinent for today. We started with 1 Corinthians 1-2 there, and, and 1 and 2 is, is what I want to read this morning, and just as we deal with some of the details, we want to talk about some of the circumstances of the letter. In verse 1 we read, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. And so right from the start we see who wrote this. The Apostle Paul is the author, and that's really not questioned in scholarly circles. 
And so Paul is writing this to the church that he founded, and we'll cover that as we, we go along. He mentions that he's an apostle. And he's going to do that for the authority that that brings and remind them of the position that God has placed him in because that was being questioned in the church at Corinth. Sosthenes is a, um, was possibly his secretary through this, but he was probably with Paul. And we'll read in Acts 18 the story of Paul founding the church at Corinth. And Sosthenes looks like he was the head of the synagogue there. And some say it might have been another Sosthenes because there's all kinds of different Sosthenes. I don't know if you've, you've heard that name before. But for them, it was sort of like Mark. You know, this morning we're on our way in and, and Mark hears uh, about a songwriter named Mark who wrote this song. And he's like, I didn't write that song. <laughs> like, no, that's because it's a different Mark. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sosthenes was a name like that. But probably the reason he's mentioned is because it was the same Sosthenes that they knew in, in Corinth. And we'll see that in Acts chapter 18. We see in verse 2 who it was to. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so we know that this is written to the church at Corinth. Not a building, but a gathering of people. A gathering of those that have accepted Christ as their Savior and put their trust in Him. And that was the target. But it was in the city of Corinth. We have some slides this morning, which is always sort of fun. Corinth was a major Greek city in the past, and just to give you a little bit of history before we get to the map, it was a major Greek city, a center of culture and of influence. And then about 146 BC, so, you know, a good 200 years before this was written, the Romans came in and destroyed it. And they tore down the buildings and burned some of the buildings and and so at, at 146, it's gone. But then just to jump ahead 100 years, about 44 to 46 B.C., some guy you may have heard of named Julius Caesar came in and rebuilt it. And he rebuilt it as a Roman city. And so it, it had some Greek influence from its history, but then it was rebuilt as a, a Roman city, and it quickly regained its former greatness. If you look on the map and look for where it is, this is Corinth right over here. We're going to follow Paul's missionary journey, his second missionary journey in a moment. But this is modern-day Greece, and um, over here we have Asia Minor. Over here we have Israel. You see the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. So that gives us a little bit of bearing of where we're at. But Corinth is over here. If you could see over here, there's a little boot called Italy. And so that's the, the bearings of where we're at. Julius Caesar colonized this city. And one of the things he did was colonized it with people that were of the freedmen class, they called it. Really, what it came down to is Rome had an excess number of poor people and soldiers coming back from the war, and they needed a place to put them. And so they sent many of them all over the place, but many of them they sent to Corinth. And so it started out with a number of people that really had no other uh, place to go and no resources. In fact, the early stories said that they, when they got to Corinth, they, they were so destitute that they opened up graves that were there to try to get any sort of tools, any sort of money, anything they could use just to live there. So that was the rebuilding of Corinth. However, it didn't, it didn't stay small. It rose to prominence quickly, as we'll see when we get to some of the descriptions. 
around the time Paul was there, there was about 100,000 people living there. So about 80,000 in the city itself, about 20,000 in the rural areas around. That's pretty big for the time. In fact, some say it was one of the biggest cities Paul had been to to date when he goes there to preach the gospel. The population was largely Gentile, but it did have a Jewish settlement there in a synagogue that we'll see, but largely Gentile with Roman influence. If you had to describe the city, you'd say it was a city of wealth, culture, status, unbridled self, and many gods. One of the commentaries wrote that wealth and ostentatious display became the hallmark of Corinth. It was a chief city in the area, both politically and commercially. Some of the reasons for that. The first is wealth. Oh, this is a, a, a stone with an inscription that had Julius Caesar name on it, so we have um, a lot of history, a lot of archaeology that, that attests to some of this. But here's a, a picture that's a little closer up, so if we zoom in, we get this picture of here's Corinth. And, and Corinth really spread throughout this whole area, but um, the center of Corinth was there. And if you notice, Corinth is on this narrow strip of land between the Corinthian Gulf and the Saronic Gulf, or the um, Aegean Sea, and then the gateway to Italy on the other side. And this became a very strategic place for Corinth to be located. See, one of the things that would happen is shipping would come from the east over here and come from the west, and they would come to here to get to the other side. So this was a major crossroads. To take a ship around here was about 250 miles. And it was treacherous miles. Rocks, storms, um, you just never knew if you were going to survive it. In fact, um, MacArthur said, a sailor never takes a journey around Malia until he first writes his will. That was sort of one of the sayings of the time. So we have, we have Corinth here on this isthmus, say that a lot of times fast, isthmus, this narrow strip of land about four and a half miles and what would happen is you're walking through Corinth. Not only do you see this decadent city and you see temples all over the place and you see statues of gods and you see prostitutes trying to get your attention, but if you looked on the, in the horizon, you might see ships sailing across the land. And you'd be like, what? And what they did is they built a road, a stone road, from one port to the other port, about four and a half miles long, and for smaller ships, they would actually, for a fee, which is why they became a wealthy city, for a fee, they'd hoist your ship up onto rollers, sometimes a platform on rollers, and they would cart your ship across the four and a half miles and save you the 250 life-threatening sailing miles around the, the, around the Cape. If it was a large ship, what they would do is they would unload the cargo of your ship, put it in carts, take those across, and then you'd secure another ship on the other side, to continue your journey. So Corinth controlled the shipping from east to west. They were able to tax that. They were able to charge for the services of getting the goods from one side to another. And so that became a, a wealthy city. And those were ways that wealth was generated quickly. And in fact, anyone could become wealthy there just by helping with this process and by, by being a merchant to the, the people that were visiting it was known as if there was any place you could get ahead, it was Corinth. That was the place where a little effort, a little putting yourself in, ahead of others and stepping on their, their feet, 
and you could get yourself some wealth and, and move ahead in life. Do we have slides yet? Okay. Picture a slide with a little road. <laughs> Ship going across. And then picture a, a slide with a canal and seeing both ports. And I'll, we'll, we'll show that one because it's really interesting. In AD 66, Nero actually began construction of a canal because the idea was if we have a road this four and a half miles, why not dig a canal and just sail the ships across? Nero started it, but it didn't work out. He uh, abandoned the project uh, and died. Um, eventually, in 1893, the present four-mile canal was dug. And so there is a canal now, and it's, it's a really interesting picture because you can see both ports, you can see the canal, and it's a way that ships can get across. So when we think of Corinth, one of the things we think of is wealth. What's interesting, because it was a, a dual port city, it had incredible opportunity for the spread of the gospel. See, what happened when people came to Corinth? Where did they go? To the rest of the world. And so the, the population was often in flux, and, and much of the population was coming and going. And so this became a strategic place where if Paul could preach the gospel here, if a church could flourish here, the gospel would spread quicker to the rest of the world than having to send people to every city. Because you were sending people. And so Corinth was a place of great wealth. Corinth was a, a place of culture, and they prided themselves on culture. One of the things that you, you've heard of probably is the Olympics. Well, the second games that they would have, or the, the second most prominent games, were the Ismanian games, and those were held in Corinth every two years. People came from all over the place to come and, and participate in these games. It was considered an intellectual center. And so the, the idea of a discourse about philosophy and, and education was, was held in high regard there. And those that were able to do that were put on pedestals. It was a center from their past of Greek, Greek philosophy and knowledge and from their current status of Roman culture and influence. So a city of wealth, a city of culture. It was a city of status as well. And this is a particular one that I think really impacted the church at Corinth and was hard to get out of. And it may not be understandable for us, but I'll try to describe it, what it was like in Corinth. Corinth became the capital of the, the area of modern-day Greece, but of, of Achaia. But social status was huge here. You had the up-and-comers, the rich people, and you had the poor. And the two often were separate. The, the rich people would make fun of the poor because they had earned it, at least in some sort of way, whether morally or immorally. They had come to that point in status. But it was a huge issue in Corinth. Everyone wanted to increase their social status. And that comes to play on the church. One author was, was talking about an individual status, and he said it's tied to a variety of factors. Occupational prestige, so what you did was part of your, your status. Your income or wealth, your education and knowledge, your religious purity, your family and ethnic group, your position, and your local community status. He went on to say they don't all carry the same weight, though. In fact, it, it really depends on who's doing the weighing, which one is most important. Because then, if I'm doing the weighing, I can pick the one that I excel in, and I can have more status than you. So it was a very individualistic society that was all about status and, and promoting yourself 
with others. Another author wrote about how to get status and studying the history of Corinth. Some of the available options were, so if you're living in Corinth and you want to know how to get some, some more attention, you could sponsor private entertainment. Have a party. Invite a lot of people over. And the entertainment was probably not entertainment that we would consider godly. But hey, the more people you brought over for that, the higher your status went. Um, you could, you could um, host games and festivals. You could have a patronage of new cults or collegia. So if you came along and through your money, you were able to give money and start a new cult, that was considered a, an area of status. Or collegia, if you were able to sponsor a student or a school and, and increase the intellectual capacity of the area. If you had philosophical acumen, you could have these arguments with people. Sponsorship or receipt of an approved honorary statue. That's sort of a nice one. I, I can do that one. So if you, you commissioned a statue and brought that in and into the city, that's a way that you could get more honor. Probably a little plaque with your name, or not plaque, but an inscription with your name on it. These are some of the ways. Um, if you displayed socially your slaves and the people working for you, that was an area of status. So really, the size of your gifts and the number of clients that you were a patron to, and, and that just means the number of people you supported and, and mentored and, and gave money in life and that worked for you. This is all part of what Paul will talk about when he talks about the secular wisdom of the time. The secular wisdom was step on whoever you need to, make sure you're always increasing your social status. These were the things that were valued not that silly message of the cross. So you can see where it would be hard to be a church in Corinth. Then we get to unbridled self. The next category of Corinth. And Corinth was known for its unbridled immorality. It was a port city. And if you think one port city is bad, it was a dual port city. And so you had the whole sailor mindset from both sides. People were coming and going. And so much so that it got a name for itself. One of the playwrights uh, of the time um, started a term to Corinthianize. And it meant to practice sexual immorality. That just was the word for it. And it caught on. And so everyone knew if you said, oh, oh he's Corinthianizing, they're like, oh yeah, I know what he's doing. Um, if a woman was said to be a Corinthian woman, that meant she was a prostitute. This is what the city was known for unbridled self. Whatever desire you have, whatever passion you have, go for it. One author, another author, wrote of um, Corinth, the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means. The man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust. The athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. Just think for a minute, where does that take a city? If everyone is just saying the, their own law is their own desires, what I want to do, no matter what it is, I get to do that. And you see a city in moral decline with serious issues in that realm. And that was Corinth. That was where the church was attempting to live godly lives. 
Go on to religion and think of the many gods that they had. Corinth was filled with numerous sites of pagan worship. There was at least 12 temples to different gods. At least 15 gods and goddesses were prominently worshipped. And that doesn't even count emperor worship and some of the other things that they did. If we get the pictures back up, we'll be able to show the Acrocorinth, which is this hill or this mountain right next to the city. And so you have the city down here and then this towering hill above it. For those of you that have been to Bernal, sort of that look, except bigger. And at the top of the Acrocorinth was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love or the goddess of sex. And in fact, at one point in the, the highest prominence of Corinth, the historians estimate that there was about a thousand temple prostitutes that would come down. And I know this is hard stuff to hear and talk about, but this is the city that the church was, was being founded in and trying to live in. And these temple prostitutes would come down in the city and try to attract men and ply their wares. You had the god of Apollo and a temple to Apollo. And Apollo, as opposed to the goddess of female love, was the ideal of male beauty. So all over town you'd see nude male statues and this gave rise to a whole culture of homosexuality. You had the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing. You had Poseidon was worshipped, the god of sea and earthquakes. That one I can understand. If you're a dual port city, not, not that it's right, that's not what I mean by understand. But if you're a dual port city, the god of sea and earthquakes probably is an important one to get on your side, right? And so right down by the isthmus, by the narrowest point where they took the ships across, they built his temple there to worship him and to gain favor. You had Roman emperor worship. Um, They deified Julius Caesar for rebuilding the town. Along with that, you had a little synagogue, a little Jewish synagogue that Paul visited. Athena was worshipped. Hermes was worshipped. The idea is the more gods you can have on your side, the better. So let's just have them all. Bring them all into the city. Do whatever they say to do. And whatever my need is today, one of them's going to help me out. That was considered intellectual. Smart. And so you have an intellectual, prosperous, but morally corrupt city in the city of Corinth. So where does that leave the church? How do you live godly lives in that kind of culture without just going into some cloister and shutting the doors and saying, I'm never going to interact with anyone. But for them, think of a Christian in that culture. Christians were considered weird. They were the strange people because they didn't hold any of the normal values of the city. One God? That's ridiculous. How can there be only one God? You don't even have a temple to worship your God? Oh, he's not a very good God then, is he? You're meeting in houses? Do you see some of the pressure they were under? It's why in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, and you'll see a lot of these things referenced throughout 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, Paul brings them back. For although there may may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So this concept of one God was foreign. 
the concept of equality of believers was foreign. And so we're going to see all throughout 1 Corinthians uh, a differentiation between the rich and the poor, those that are cultured and those that aren't. Because the church was saying, no, you're all one. You are one body. And culture was saying, that's ridiculous. Christians are weird. You're not supposed to sleep around? Well, what's up with that? That's what we do in Corinth. So there were issues of moral purity. You're not supposed to stab each other to get ahead and just sue each other and take each other to court to make people pay and to get your way. But that's what we do in Corinth. You're given grace by God. No, no, we take what we want. Because that's how we do it in Corinth. And in fact, there was animosity toward the Christians because they didn't worship the emperor. They didn't worship all these gods. What if because you, Phil, don't worship the god Poseidon, what if I lose my ship because you've blown it for me? That's the pressure that was happening in this city. And that's the backdrop for the foundation of the church. Turn to Acts chapter 18. Back just a little bit. I want to read Paul's first visit to Corinth. Probably in A.D. 51, on his second missionary journey, he's made a, a journey through Asia Minor, and he's come down now through Greece, through Athens, and eventually to Corinth. And in Acts 18, verse 1, we see the foundation of God's holy church in this morally corrupt culture. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So right from the start, he comes and God blesses him with two dear friends. Two dear friends that he, ha- he quickly has a bond with, They're believers, and we're going to see they influence um, other believers and Apollos a little bit later. And he lives with them, and he makes tents, and he's working at first because he's alone as he comes as he comes to Corinth. Then in verse five, we see some of his help help arrive when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word. Many think that that means he was then able to focus on teaching and uh, of being in the synagogue and trying to convert people to Christianity. He was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews and that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled Him, He shook out His garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And He left there and went to the house of a name named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. I love this next phrase. His house was next door to the synagogue. So He's teaching in the synagogue, right? You following what's happening? He's teaching in the synagogue. Finally, the Jews are like, forget this. We, we don't want to hear you teach anymore. So he shakes off the dust, says, okay, the message is for Gentiles too. Praise God that it's for the whole world. And so he, he finds a place right next door to the synagogue. So I'll teach here. I love the strategy there. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And so we see that the gospel is going forth with power in this corrupt city. The leader of the, the, the ruler of the synagogue accepts Christ. 
and his whole family and becomes a believer. Many were becoming believers and then being baptized, which signifies a a, a public acknowledgement of a faith in Christ. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, verse 9, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Which Paul was probably thankful for. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. So we know from that verse that Paul stayed there a year and a half. Teaching, encouraging the church, helping the church grow. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians, we're going to see in, in chapter 3 twice, in chapter 4, Paul often refers to this church as he, he planted the church, he fathered the church, he laid its foundation. This is why. He planted it. He did. He started it. Verse 12, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, before he could even say anything, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. The next verse is very interesting, and this is why I think it's the same Sosthenes. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. All kinds of conjecture of why they just drug him out and beat him. One possibility is he was also a believer and and was a supporter of Paul. Another possibility is they didn't feel like he, he took enough action on Paul. And if we have to do it ourselves, you should have been beating him, so we're going to beat you. But whatever it was, I think this is the same Sosthenes that Paul refers to as helping write the letter. And that he was a believer and ended up being a, a co-worker with Paul. And so that's what we get about the start of the church at Corinth. A year and a half of ministry and a church that has started. And after that, it says Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave and set sail for Syria. He was going to, through Ephesus, go back to Jerusalem and eventually Antioch. Priscilla and Aquila stayed for a while and then went to um, Ephesus with him. And there they met Apollos. They corrected some of Apollos' doctrine, showed him um, a little bit more about Christ, sent him to Corinth to be a teacher. So we had Paul teaching for a year and a half, and then Apollos is sent there, whole different style, and he teaches there for a while. And in chapters 1 through 4, we'll, we'll get to see what happened because of that and what Paul is dealing with. Eventually, Paul starts his third missionary journey, comes back to Ephesus, and he's there for about three years, and about the end of that three years, we come to the time where 1 Corinthians is written. We come to the issues at hand. And so we have to ask the question, why the letter? What was the need for the letter? This is a letter that we call an occasional letter, and that doesn't mean that he occasionally wrote, but because of an occasion, because of some circumstances, he wrote to address some issues. And there's two major reasons for the need of the letter. Paul had heard a troubling report. He had heard a troubling report. If you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 11. 1 Corinthians 1, 11. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And he goes on to talk about some of the issues. But what's happening here? And can't really see it, so I'll just be your map. If you have Corinth over here in the Aegean Sea, on the other side of the Aegean Sea is Ephesus. So if you're sailing from Corinth, your next port is probably Ephesus. And so Paul could have had information coming in from Corinth. And he gets some, some of the people, Chloe's people, and she was probably one of the leading ladies in the church, maybe even the church, one of the churches was at her house. And he's starting to find out what's going on. It's been three or four years since he started the church, since he's been away. And in three or four years, a lot can happen. And sure enough, it did. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. And so he's hearing things. And you know, that tends to happen, right? We hear how things are happening. If you have a child at college, you hear how things are going. Hopefully. You're checking Facebook and all kinds of other ways. Second reason Paul wrote the letter was the church at Corinth had actually sent him a letter and asked some questions. The church at Corinth had asked some questions. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, about halfway through the letter, we see Paul write, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so if you, you had to sort of break down the, the book, the first six chapters are the things Paul's heard about that he's concerned about, that he goes boom, boom, boom. And then from 7 on, those are the things that they wrote about and he's answering their questions. They probably had a delegation, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus, that brought this letter. And so Paul hears some of the issues going on in the church. And in this church, in this morally corrupt town, he's hearing that there are divisions and factions. And people are dividing over following this man or that man. He's hearing about jealousy happening in the church. He's hearing about unchecked and even celebrated immorality in the church and issues of incest in the church that are openly being allowed to continue. He's hearing about legal disputes in the church and people suing one another and going to court. He's hearing about immaturity. He's hearing about issues of putting self above others and with the whole meat in the marketplace. And we'll, we'll talk about that. He's hearing about marriage issues and marriages falling apart and people not having a godly view of marriage. He's hearing about worship issues. The improper use of gifts such as tongues and prophecy. Worship issues with the Lord's Supper and people taking it without the right spirit. You might say this church was a mess. But what's interesting to me is this church, God chose to come in and remind them that they are sanctified, redeemed saints. And that he can clean up the mess and still use them for his kingdom. And so we don't come to 1 Corinthians thinking, oh, how awful this church is. We come looking for the solutions that God used to bring this church back to health. We may not have the same issues as the church at Corinth. I pray we don't have the same issues as the church at Corinth. But we still can look beyond that and look to the solutions that are presented. How did God want to build a healthy church? You see, the church at Corinth was struggling because the city of Corinth was still in the church. They had never gotten rid of the influence. 
It was seeping in. It was pouring in. It was oozing into every part of their church existence. And they weren't stopping it. And they maybe weren't even aware of it in some cases. And these redeemed saints were living like ungodly unbelievers. And so Paul saw this church at a crisis point. A tipping point. Which way would they go? It's not the most flattering letter about Corinth. But it's a letter we can learn so much through. You see a little bit of a chronology in your notes there? Paul's discussion with the church at Corinth is actually an ongoing discussion. I'd love to say one letter and it was done. And the issues were dealt with. But issues of worldliness that have crept into our normal that we we don't even realize are there are issues that take a lot of work to get rid of. And so we saw the, the foundation of the church in A.D. 51 in Acts 18. We see Paul go away, and then he starts to hear some things, and he writes a letter before 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians isn't the first letter. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, he mentions that. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He's already dealt with this once. It didn't work. And he hears continued reports coming in, and his heart is breaking. Because this is the church he founded, and he invested a year and a half of his life in. And so he writes a first letter that we don't have. Then in AD 55, he writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. to try, And it's probably a little stronger to try to turn this church around. We know from 2 Corinthians that soon after writing this, he made what he called a painful visit to Corinth. So his second visit was one of chastisement, was one of the authority of an apostle trying to correct a wayward church. That still didn't work. And so he wrote a third letter, which we don't have, which was called a severe letter. Sent it with Titus, probably, to the church at Corinth. And then he worries. Maybe worry is not the right word, but he wonders. How are they responding to this severe letter? How is this church going to get back on its feet? So much so that he's looking for Titus. And he he takes off out of Ephesus, goes up to Macedonia, and finally catches up with Titus. And he hears that the letter was received. And that things are turning around. Not perfect yet, but things are turning around. So then he writes 2 Corinthians, which has a whole different tone from 1 Corinthians. Still some correction, but you can tell that things are turning around and getting better in this church. Because God is doing a work with clay pots and messy people. And his church will survive. And Paul soon visits after 2 Corinthians a much more pleasant visit. So we have this whole history of dealing with this wayward church in this ungodly town. But the message isn't all the different ways that they're wayward. It's that the power of God saved this church. And so the title of our sermon series is Godly Lives in in an Ungodly World. Godly living in an ungodly world. Because that's what the book's about. It's about how do we keep the world from staining and seeping in and affecting who we are. And so we want to look for the lessons behind the problems and apply those. We don't want to get into this trap of saying, oh, at least we're not the church of Corinth. We're doing pretty good. No, we want to keep growing and keep learning. 
So in your notes, there's seven themes that we're going to talk about. I'm just going to mention these because this is what we're going to talk about the next few months as we study through 1 Corinthians. The first is you are sanctified saints rather than worldly believers. You are sanctified saints rather than worldly unbelievers. Sorry. And that's where it has to start. The challenge is, am I becoming more like Christ or am I becoming more like the world? See, if the world, and and I love uh, this quote going around, but if the world understands my life, then there's something wrong with my life. Because the world shouldn't understand my life as a godly life. And so Paul reminds them that they are sanctified saints. How much of the city, how much of the world is still in us is the question that we'll ask as we study through that. Second theme we'll see is unity and community through Christ rather than rivalries over men and over status. See, if you could choose the right horse to follow, you got more status. Third theme we'll look at is holiness rather than immorality and the imprint of the world on our lives. Holiness rather than immorality. And so Paul deals with that explicitly and directly. It's that important. We'll look at the centrality of the Gospel rather than the centrality of self. Why are we here? And we've been talking about that as a church, but for each of us, what is my purpose in life? So we'll have phrases from Paul like 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures. The Gospel is central and should be central if we're to stand in an ungodly world. Fifth theme is going to talk about is putting others first, loving one another rather than selfish ambition. And think of the history of the church. Selfish ambition was the value to hold to. And so Paul is going to teach some very countercultural things. We have the love chapter in 1 Corinthians. This wonderful exposition of love that applies to church body, spiritual gifts in the church. It also applies to getting beyond themselves in the culture of Corinth and loving one another. Sixth theme we'll look at is worship for the edification of the body rather than coming to get and do only what I want. They had serious issues in worship. It wasn't about God. It was about self. And finally, living in light of our future with Christ rather than the desires of the moment. And the city that was known for desires of the moment in that city is a church that Paul says it's about your future with Christ so a lot of different themes we'll talk through but in the end are we going to be a church that is in the world but that the world is not in us that's the goal of 1 Corinthians to think through in what ways is the world in us How can we fight those and live for God in an ungodly world? Let's pray. But God, our Father, I pray that as we go through 1 Corinthians, as we study through this wonderful book, you would challenge us. I pray that you would step on our toes. Lord, I pray right now that you would expose any areas of worldliness that any of us are holding on to. And Lord, it's a constant fight as we're sanctified 
more and more into Your glory every day. But I pray that You would challenge us and that we would open up our hearts to let the Holy Spirit do its work, even if it hurts. That we would find ways that we're not even aware that our worldview is secular, that our worldview is not one that has the cross as central. Lord, that we would stand for You in an ever-increasingly dark world. Lord, bless our study over the next few months and teach us. Build your church. In Jesus' name.